The China and Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Witt University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on Africa-China relations through innovative training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.co.za. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, a senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, we are beginning the new year with the same debates as we had last year, and it all revolves around debt and loans and whether China is a predatory lender in all of this. Now, what's interesting about all of this is that there's all the discussion about the massive amounts of loans that are going on, but very few people actually know about the inner workings of how these loans come about. Most of the time, in fact, probably all of the time, there's an extensive negotiation in all this. And this is what's so interesting, Kobus, because... The discussion on the part of, I think, Africans and certainly Westerners is all that this is being done to Africa. China is preying on Africa. China is, uh, you know, entrapping people with these massive amounts of loans. And I think the problem with that narrative is that it, again, strips Africans of their agency. That is their role in all of this. You and I have talked at length about how this might actually be a cold, calculated, strategic, rational decision to be, to take on these loans to build this infrastructure as a way to jumpstart economic development. Now, the key question is, maybe it is a cold, calculated, rational decision, but are they negotiating the best deal? And that's the topic we're going to talk about this evening. The issue is frequently what is actually happening within the the African side of this negotiation. Like, what what are the what are the dynamics on the African negotiating side that keep Africans from getting the kind of deals that they should? Um, and sometimes that has to do with Chinese power and the the power uh, power gap between China and Africa. But there are also other dynamics involved within African governments that make it hard for Africans to to get really good deals out of China. And so it's, you know, it's really important to look at the internal dynamics of on the African side to, to see what can be improved. I think that's really important because oftentimes the deals are much more complex than people think they are. So they'll see a shoddy road or they'll see a dam or a hospital or the ghost towns in Angola, for example, and people think, why did they build them there? And I had a conversation a couple years ago with a Chinese contractor from a state-owned enterprise. And he said, so often, it's the host country that will drive the deal. They will say, when the construction starts, they will say, oftentimes, here's what the budget is. They will drive so much of it. And the contractors show up and do what's being determined by the host countries. Now, again, each of these deals is different. They're very, very complicated. So what we wanted to do was to try and better understand how the negotiations work, what is the inside operating of this, and talk to people who really understand this rather than the speculation that we all too commonly see in the media. So there is no better person out there than Folishadai Sule, who is a senior research associate at the University of Oxford at the Global Economic Governance Program there. She researches negotiation practices of Francophone African governments and their dealings with China. Uh, Fola Shade has also advised the OECD, that's the Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development, 
the French development agency Agence France Développement, the presidency of Benin, and a variety of consulting firms, including Oxford Analytica, Ernst & Young, and Deloitte. So I think there, Kobus, there is no better person who is well-versed on the inside negotiations than uh, Folo Shade. Folo Shade, thank you so much for joining us from London. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's really a pleasure. Now, you wrote an article in early January that got a lot of attention. How to negotiate infrastructure deals with China, four things African governments need to get right. And you started your article in a very interesting way, and it implied that China has all the leverage. This idea that, and I, to be honest with you, I assume this as well. So picture you are Benin, Togo, Ghana, these tiny little specks of countries relative to the giant that is China. And the negotiator kind of runs a rough deal and says, if you don't do this and this and this and this, the Chinese then say, you know what, forget it. We're going to pack up and we're going to go somewhere else. Now, that's how you started your article, and I thought that was so interesting. So before we get into the four things that African governments need to get right, can you talk to us a little bit about that dynamic that you described at the top of your article and the leverage and who has leverage, actually? Well, it, it all started, um, say the first interview that I got from a senior high-level official um, I asked him just, you know, from the start, how do you negotiate with China? And what he said is, yeah, well, you don't negotiate with China. Well, still, I wasn't really satisfied by that, uh, with that answer. I wanted, you know, to know more, to know more about the different dynamics, who negotiates, um, what are the different, you know, let's say, the different power plays uh, within the negotiation process. Um, it is true that we are living in a context, especially in the African context, where hard infrastructure, uh, roads, bridges, airports, uh, are regarded by many of these African governments as a key vector for economic development. Um, and China, you know, as a single country, remains one of the leading providers of infrastructure development finance to Africa. But when you go further, um, everything happens in the pre-negotiation process. And there is where the different power dynamics take place. But what I wanted to show in this article is that it is still possible, despite um, the asymmetric aspect of the negotiation process, it is still possible for African governments to get better deals. Um, in your article, you make the point, um, you actually end off the article with with saying that no deal is frequently better than a bad deal. Um, and as, as, you, as you said, you know, there seems to be a perception among certain African governments that essentially, you know, imposing uh, imposing conditions or, or driving a harder bargain means that China will simply withdraw the offer um, and simply pack up the money and leave. Um, to which extent do you, do you think that fear that you shouldn't you shouldn't uh, demand anything from China because they might simply take you know take the money and withdraw the offer um, to, which, to which extent do you think that shapes African uh, negotiations with China well I think that's a fear that's uh, mostly present on the African side um, well there are several things many of these African governments they are uh, they have put in their national development plan that infrastructure is um, 
or let's say that they will provide infrastructure to their different populations in different parts of the country. And with China coming with these turnkey projects, uh, to them, they somehow it's as if they, uh, from the start, are willing to accept all of the different uh, criteria, all of the different you know, conditions of the loans. But what I noticed in even within sometimes uh, sing, uh, one African country, you have some ministries that get better deals than others. And what I mean by better deals is that uh, some of the criteria that are often a source of content, meaning uh, labor rights, uh, respect of norms, uh, environment, construction norms, um, hiring of local workers, um, and several of all these conditions. Why is it that in the, in the same country, one minister gets a better deal than the other. So that was a bit the enigma that uh, was guiding my research from the start. And in terms of answers, uh, I notice very often that a good deal is not necessarily something that depends on China. It also depends on how the African government uh, negotiates, but how the negotiation is structured. And that's why I came up with these four conditions um, that are actually the four problems that are identified. Um, I don't, we could go we're in detail. We're going to get, I, w- I want to get to the four conditions. So I will, that's my next yes. question. But first, I want you to, to name names here. Okay. I mean, I'm not going to let you off the hook here because you wrote in your article, (laughs) you said, when you look closely at what happens on the ground, some African countries are much better negotiating with the Chinese than others. Okay. That's a great statement, but it leaves me lacking. So I would like you to identify which countries are doing well and why, and which countries are not doing well and why. Um, well, I will give you some examples because it's still an ongoing research. Uh, but if you take the example of um, Benin, small country, but very strategically located next to Nigeria, and that is of strategic importance to China also because of the harbor, because of the location and the fact that through Benin, uh, you get access to the landlocked countries uh, in West Africa. Um, a road project... Uh, an inter, you know, in, interdepartmental road project that uh, is, you know, one of these strategic uh, um, projects was, you know, many of the criteria that I mentioned uh, were not um, sufficiently, um, how do I say that? They were not sufficiently addressed, meaning that there were no, uh, there was a lack of uh, respect of environmental norms. Uh, also, there were several construction norms, you know, that were not uh, respected. Um, there were also, uh, you know, in terms of labor rights, many uh, workers on that field did not get, uh, you know, safety, um, but also, you know, social security or good salaries. Uh, so that that was an example of, a, let's say, I won't say a bad project, but something that was not in the advantage of uh, the country. On the other hand, the Ministry of uh, Public Works negotiates also a deal with uh, a Chinese state-owned enterprise 
uh, because in the first case it was also a Chinese state-owned enterprise, and they succeed in the negotiation process that took much longer, and we will get uh, in, in, into details later on uh, when I will talk about the four conditions, but where all these, these same criteria were much better addressed and there were no issues, there were no complaints. Um, so that's an example of what happens within one single country. But one of the examples, and that's, I, I mentioned that in my article, is uh, the example of the railway, you know, the, the, the railway project um, in, uh, in Kenya and the one in Ethiopia. Uh, the one from Ethiopia was much more, um, let's say, much more modern, but also at the same time less expensive than the one from Kenya. And so that triggers, you know, this question, what happened there? Um, okay, those are two different countries, two different characteristics in terms of environment, in terms of technical details. That's true. But why is there such a, a difference, you know, in terms of cost? Well, many issues also happen there. Uh, the negotiation process, the coordination, but also, you know, several allegations of corruption. Um, so th those are... Those are well, two or two, three examples that I I can uh, provide for the moment, uh, you know, just to, to answer that question. Uh, and I, I can also provide more later on during the conversation. So, in in the in the article, you um, you essentially break down the, the the these complications of of negotiating with China into into four strategies. Um, so, the you you call these involve everyone. Um, then uh, empower the negotiators, um, keep the, the public on side, and increase knowledge. I wonder if you can talk us briefly through what you mean with these four strategies. Well, these four conditions are of key importance in the negotiation process because most of them, especially the two first ones, you know, uh, the first one about involving everyone and the second one about empowering the negotiators, these two conditions happen in the pre-negotiation process. And, you know, every negotiation expert will tell you that it's in the pre-negotiation phase that everything should be set on the table and everything should be negotiated in, the, in details. And that's uh, also sorry, the case can I, in... Can I interrupt you very quickly? For those of us who are not familiar what the difference is between the negotiation process and the pre-negotiation process, can you explain the difference between those two? Well... Let's say that what I call pre-negotiation is um, when there's first what you said in the early beginnings about this demand-driven aspect. You know, when the first interactions from that part, the first interactions between the Chinese uh, state-owned enterprise, the ambassador, and the, the African government, the ministerial representatives, the presidency representatives, uh, sometimes experts and lawyers that are, uh, you know, that are also part of the process. That those, there are several steps in the negotiation phase. The, the core, let's say, before the deal gets signed, that's at the very end between, you know, often the Minister of uh, Foreign Affairs and the Ambassador and the representative of the Ch uh, Chinese Policy Bank. But the details of the project, the characteristics and the different conditions that I mentioned earlier, those happen in the very early beginnings. That's what I meant by the pre-negotiation phase. Uh, and in this 
pre-negotiation phase, uh, it's very important um, that these governments say uh, what they want. It's very that, that's also that's so key in the process. And what happens, and that brings me to my condition one, is that very often there are um, this part is fragmented, meaning that following you know all these pledges made at the bilateral and multilateral meetings um, when these representatives these chinese representatives come to discuss with um the, the technical ministries sometimes which should not necessarily be the case actually there are two um there are two ways of doing what i noticed there are two trends either Everything is centralized in Togo and Cameroon, for instance. Everything is centralized at the presidency and the prime minister cabinet. The Chinese negotiate directly with these um, officials. In other countries like uh, Senegal, Benin, there are some interaction between the presidency and, um, and the prime minister, but then it, there's a decentralization process that, brings the negotiation phase directly to the technical ministries. And they, they are the ones then dealing with China before going back up you know, to the uh, prime minister and the, um, and the presidency. And what happens in these uh, negotiation processes is that um, in many cases, some ministries get circumvented. Let me give you some clear examples. Um, again, in, in the case of Benin, which was you know the very first case study that I that I um, did, what happens uh, in Benin is that instead of coordinating, instead of the different technical ministries coordinating with the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, for instance, they prefer to deal directly with China, sign the deal. Or bring it directly to the, you know, to the to the upper level, saying, "Well, it's negotiated. We can go on." Uh, and many aspects are not integrated in the contract. First, um, they don't speak the same language, uh, so there are many communication and language issues, where the Ministry of Foreign Affairs could have helped. Um, secondly, some of the technical details are not necessarily, you know, um, all present. Uh, and that will bring me to my second condition, you know, about empowering the negotiators. But this first condition is uh, what happens the most, this fragmented negotiation process where there's a lack of coordination among the different entities within uh, the African government. That creates also uh, several issues. Um, I can now go to the second one, and I'll be uh, quite brief on that one. It's you know, the presidential intervention. You know, it's important to empower the negotiators. What I noticed uh, often is that the president can intervene in the negotiation process, you know, making, all the, making the civil servants, uh, you know, let's say, fasten up. Project. I don't know if, if, if that's how I should uh, put it, but uh, there's a for political reasons, it, everything should go as fast as possible. The road should be constructed, the bridge should be constructed, uh, because these government, especially in democratic countries where there's only a five years term uh, renewable, uh, maybe once China and China infrastructure becomes very strategic 
for these governments um, uh, in order to be able to showcase you know, what they have been doing. And so they, some presidents will intervene directly in the negotiation process to fasten uh, everything up and to speed it up. And that also creates several issues because many of the norms are not necessarily uh, respected. Um, I wanted to give you one example uh, you know, that, go, that talks a bit to these two, con uh, these two first conditions. Um, the problem with decentralization, a, a project that I'm currently investigating with uh, a colleague of mine is a sugarcane investment project in Segu, in the region of Mali. And the contract is only three pages long. So any... Uh, negotiator or lawyer or, you know, contract expert will tell you that this is a problem. It suggests a lack of attention to details. And when the contract is signed, it's very difficult for the local officials to try to exert some pressure, you know, for payment of taxes, uh, irrigation water fees, because the company gets the Chinese embassy to pressure the central government and says, well, the deal has been signed, you know, which is very difficult then to, uh, it's very difficult to renegotiate and it's a way of telling the local officials just to back off. Support for this podcast comes from the Africa China Reporting Project at Witt University School of Journalism in Johannesburg. The ACRP provides reporting grants, workshops and other professional development opportunities for both African and Chinese journalists. Follow the ACRP on Twitter at Vits China Africa or visit africachinareporting.co.za for information about grants and upcoming seminars. You know, you raise such interesting kind of questions around um, the, the dynamics within African governments around this, especially the kind of undercutting of the authority of the negotiators by people above them. Um, how would you suggest that would be solved? It seemed, you know, from the outside, it seemed to me that A, it's driven a lot by, by political, local political imperatives, and then it's also to a certain extent driven even by by interpersonal, you know, interactions between them, you know, kind of where, where there's, where the the power differential between different people in the government is so stark. Um, you know, what would you suggest to to an African negotiating team going into into negotiations with, negotiations with Chinese counterparts to try and avoid these um, these issues that sometimes seem to be inherent to governing itself? Um, yes, it, those that that actually was my main point also or one of the key points in my article this the problems negotiation problems or bad deals are inherent to african governments um as well and uh, the problem is that the president sometimes in some cases that was the case in in benin but also sometimes in countries like togo well they put their ministers who are often politically appointed ministers in competition you know to get to get uh, contracts, uh, everyone is in charge of getting finance uh, for development. And so it's about who gets uh, the deal the, uh, the quickest way possible. Um, and all of that creates all these uh, issues, you know, of bad deals coming out. What I would suggest is it's very important, and, and I said that in my article, to involve everyone and just to take time. It's it, just taking time, um, not, you know, go 
hastily uh, around you know the whole negotiation process and about who should get what what should be negotiated take time and involve everyone involve the on one single project there are so many different aspects so it's important to have this multidisciplinary approach i would say you know of, of coming from an academic background but bringing in the ministry of of, of justice the ministry of finance the ministry of of uh, public works the ministry of um you know, uh, the Ministry of Environment. And that is what happened before, let's say, before um, this very, uh, before China became such an important partner for infrastructure funding with the former um, development providers, the negotiation process was much more, I won't say slow, but all the different aspects were discussed among all these partners, but also, you know, in a, more coherent way. But let me challenge you a little bit on this because it does sound a little bit like in the ideal, sure, you want to bring everybody involved. That makes sense. We've talked about bringing in civil society groups. You're talking about bringing in other ministries. But that is in a well-functioning government. Um, there's, There's a lot of governments in Africa where the various ministries are actually competing with each other. They're very, they're hostile to one another. By involving more ministries, you are also opening up for more corruption. Sure, you want the Minister of Justice to be involved, you're going to have to pay. You want the Minister of Environment to get involved, you're going to have to pay. And then they'll slow it up until they get what they want. So the Chinese have always preferred to deal with a small number of people because that allowed them to get the deals done faster. Now, at the same time, you've said we should open it up, involve everyone. Again, in principle, I agree with you. In practice, I think that's very difficult. But you also said at the, at the, in the program that um, in democratic countries, politicians are on an electoral timeline. I remember when I was in Kinshasa in the, um, in the, you know, about 10 years ago, and Joseph Kabila, the president there back then, former president now, I think, uh, he, um, you know, he was getting the Chinese to build his Saint Chantier, which were these five construction projects, but they were pressured to do it in time for the elections. Didn't matter on the quality, didn't matter on anything. Just get these things done before the election so he could run on, as you said, look at what I've done for you. And so those seem to be at odds with one another. So on the one hand, the timeline gets expedited for political reasons. And on the other hand, you're saying involve more factions, more entities, more discussion, and that could just bog the process down in internal politics. How do you reconcile those two? Well, um, well, there are two things here. First, the responsibility does not only lie, uh, you know, upon the African government; it also lies you know, within the Chinese um, negotiation uh, actors and uh, the different institutions that are in, uh, involved in the process. So when the Chinese go directly to the technical ministries to get the deals and then try to get, you know, the signature of the ministers and all above, they are also making a mistake um, by not, you know, following the official guidelines of the countries. Because within these countries, um, especially the the ones that I've, uh, you know, studied, whether it's Senegal, Togo, Cameroon, uh, uh, Benin, uh, Mali, um, and also Cote d'Ivoire, there are... There are guidelines for negotiations. You know, there is um, there are different rules of negotiation that normally all the development providers should follow. So it's important that 
you know, the, the, the Chinese responsibility, uh, you know, is also uh, taken into account here. Secondly, the project, uh, you were talking about the electoral uh, obligation, and I, I wanted also to, to, you know, to come back to what I said earlier about democratic governments and, you know, obligations towards their population. But also in autocratic governments, uh, you take the example of Togo, uh, for Nyasigbe Yadema, he has also, um, you know, he has also some, let's say, responsibilities towards his population. And the, the population, they hold the government accountable, you know, for providing, uh, you know, social, um, you know, better social conditions, uh, uh, better economic conditions. And China becomes then a way for the government to, uh, you know, to, to legitimize their actions, but also to, you know, to respond to these different demands. Um, the point is, there are many Chinese projects, uh, and it's interesting, it's those who we uh, almost never hear about, but there are several projects w which uh, follow these official guidelines of, you know, involving all the different counterparts and all, and there are many examples of successes. I was talking about several ministerial buildings in Benin, uh, you know, led by the Minister of Public Works. Um, it, they have followed these different guidelines. They have, you know, been able to uh, respect all these different criteria, and the outcome has been positive for the African government. So uh, I will insist on that. I think it's important to bring all these uh, all these different uh, actors together and, uh, you know, to, to, to go beyond the different interpersonal, you know, power plays, uh, that is something that should be, uh, you know, addressed and, and avoided in the negotiation project. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the role of corruption in all of this. Um, you know, there's such a strong perception that corruption is endemic in Africa and that it would play into these negotiations. But is, is, has that been your, your experience too? And what role does it actually play in, in these negotiations? Hmm. Well, uh, corruption, uh, there's several allegations of corruption. And corruption happens when the negotiation process uh, is also fragmented. You know, going directly to the technical ministries opens the way for corruption. Making what happens clearly is that the Chinese state enterprise or the representative would say, "Well, if we get you know this project, if we are allowed to build this priority project of yours, well, you will get uh, five percent or six percent." Uh, so there's where corruption also happens. Corruption happens also at the higher level. You know, among the what I mean by the higher level is the prime minister uh, cabinet, uh, the, the presidential cabinet. Uh, so I think, um, on the contrary of what you, you said earlier, uh, Eric, it's when the negotiations are fragmented that corruption uh, possibilities are higher. It's much more difficult to corrupt a whole, let, let's say, set of negotiators with representatives from all these different countries who are collectively bargaining a deal. So that there's, I think, fragmented negotiation is, you know, a vector for an increased level of corruption. So one of the things that bothers people the most about the Chinese presence in Africa, and it's been something from almost the beginning, is the presence of Chinese workers 
when they see them at construction sites. I mean, it just sticks in them. I mean, Michael Sada, the former president of Zambia, said, you know, he doesn't want to see a Chinese pushing a wheelbarrow. That was his famous kind of saying. And it, it really defines so much of the narrative today about the Chinese presence in Africa, something that Hillary Clinton, when she was Secretary of State, Rex Tillerson, they all bring it up that this is the evidence that says China is not good for Africa because, look, they're bringing in their own workers. As somebody who studies the negotiations, how does this happen? And question is question number two is, does it happen as much as people think it does? Well, well two things. In the negotiation process, yes, that's what... Uh, what, that's one of the criteria that is uh, discussed. And so what I have noticed in a country like Togo, for instance, is that many, um, many of the, the civil servants I've been talking to would tell me, well, you know, uh, China comes with this turnkey project. It's very difficult to negotiate. They come with you know, their own workers. Uh, because in some cases, the workers... There are, let's say in some cases there are more African workers, but they are the uh, less skilled workers. But uh, at the higher level, you know, the engineers, the, the high-skilled workers are from China. Well, the problem there is that the, the technology transfer does not necessarily occur between, you know, these two uh, layers. Um, and that is something that some uh, governments or some ministries negotiate also better than others. Uh, if uh, Giving you the example of um, IT project, IT and you know internet cables and all. Uh, when you look at some projects, whether it's in, uh, in again in Benin or in in Senegal or in Ivory Coast, many of the some of the governments, what they do first is that they get experts. You know the, that goes back to my second condition about empowering the negotiators. They bring along experts from these countries or experts who work in these policy banks in order to, uh, you know, get also some additional expertise, but uh, also internal regulatory agencies um, who are able to go deeper into uh, the different details. One thing is, one thing that is very important uh, is that civil servants are not necessarily negotiators. Negotiation is a skill. Uh, it's an expertise. Uh, so it's important to uh, keep that in mind. Uh, and that's also a problem because at the, you know, at the negotiation table, on, the, on one hand or on one side of the negotiation table, you have civil servants uh, negotiating these deals, um, sometimes experts or sometimes there are just no expert, but on the Chinese side of the negotiation skills, you have this combination of both, you know, uh, let's say government, but also business interests, you know, the, the state-owned enterprises, they represent uh, the business, the, the embassy and the Chinese economic mission, they represent political and, and also geopolitical interests. And there's, this already creates an, an issue at the negotiation table, where it's it's not the same people talking one to each one to another, um, and and criteria like workers uh, are also negotiated at that table. And what should be better negotiated there is um, you know technology transfer among these different workers, you know skilled workers, less skilled workers, but also hiring much more uh, workers uh, from 
the government, especially at the high level, at the high-skilled uh, workers level. Um, how you know you you mentioned the the four the, these uh, four you know strategies to to strengthen Africa's position in negotiating with with China. Um, how optimistic are you that 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 African governments are going to take on a more a more kind of proactive negotiating position? Do you do you think that that do you think that they're kind of slowly moving in that direction, or are they still stuck in this idea of like, oh, we better take what they give, or otherwise this they won't be anything? No, no. Uh, on the contrary, well, I've I've started this research project uh, four years ago, and I've noticed a, uh, you know several shifts, um, both in democratic and uh, autocratic uh, governments. It's that um, no, the the criticism towards China has uh, been growing, especially among uh, you know civil society uh, organizations and uh, in different parts of the population, and um, so they've been slowly. Uh, you know, taking those into account. Uh, so things that are being, let's say, put on the table uh, more frequently now, um, you know, are, you know, elements related to, as I said earlier, technology transfer, very important. The Minister of Foreign Affairs from Togo mentioned it very often in his different uh, interactions with the Chinese ambassador, but also uh, all the different governments at the higher level, at the multilateral level, uh, making China become more aware of of what they need beyond just hard infrastructure. It's important to have all these skills to to be able to to respond to the different uh, criticism uh, that are uh, addressed uh, by the by the different uh, population and that brings me you know to this third condition uh, where it's important for the african governments to integrate the civil society's concerns now overall there's a public there's a positive public uh, perception of uh, africans towards china but there's also a growing negative perception that is due to quality of Chinese project and also that the presence, uh, Chinese presence in Africa results in jobs being taken away from locals and you know, suspicion of corruption of African elites. Uh, and so those are more and more you know, taken uh, into account. Something I wanted to, to highlight is that um, sometimes it's within the government that many civil servants, bureaucrats and um, you know, also technical experts, they would just try to change things from within. These are the guys that are often uh, negotiating or working on these projects in the shadows. And they are the ones who are trying to reform the process and to come up with a coherent uh, African strategy towards China. So we started the program talking about predatory lending. And I've got about 16 more questions, but we just can't do a four-hour podcast because nobody will listen, which is unfortunate. So I want to end our program on uh, on predatory lending because I'm a little bit confused listening to your comments to understand where you come down on all this. The predatory lending narrative implies that the Chinese are out negotiating and imposing their, themselves on their African counterparts. And yet what you're saying is that there's a very, very complex dance that's happening that at least what I'm interpreting from what you're saying is that 
this is not predatory. And this is actually being negotiated from two different sides and they're coming out with a deal. The deal may not be very good. African agency works both ways. It allows you to succeed, but it also allows you to mess up. Both are agency, right? And so what I'm taking from you is there's an enormous amount of incompetence, corruption, dysfunction, lack of organization, lack of sophistication that all play to the Chinese advantage. So it gives the appearance of predatory nature that the Chinese are winning. But in fact, the difficulties that you're trying to address on the African negotiating side may just be serving up uh, bad deals to, to the Chinese or good deals for the Chinese. I'm trying to understand this. I'm not trying to bias myself towards the Chinese, but I'm trying to understand where does the predatory lending part of all this fit in this negotiation discussion and how do you see it? Um, well, it, it depends on what you mean by predatory lending. Right. I think uh, you've talked about African agency. I think African agency uh, is happening at various levels uh, of the negotiation process. And it happens also, um, you know, not only from the government, but also from civil society organization and multiple uh, different actors, you know, uh, grassroots association, but also uh, communities of China, Africa, friendship. There are so many actors that you don't see in this negotiation process. They, they don't just happen between government officials. Um, in terms of predatory lending, I think there's a conscious, there's a progressive, you know, consciousness, um, and that happened already, that happened lately at the FOCAC meeting, where you could see how these different, how different African governments have asked China, you know, to move beyond loans and to come and invest in Africa. Creating Africa, uh, creating jobs in African countries also goes through investment, right? And and and, and not just creating a, a well, what people have called a debt trap, you know, for these uh, for, for these governments. Um, so uh, I, if I had to, to give, you know, answer, an, let's say a general uh, conclusion, you know, to this, I, I would say it's important to renew the arguments. It's important to move beyond the good Africa, sorry, good China, bad China, good Africa, bad Africa um, discussions, and to look very deeply at what level improvement can be made. And that was the purpose of this article, to say, well, behind these big deals, there are so many different dysfunctionalities that happen on both sides. I've targeted the African side because uh, that's the purpose of my research. But also on the Chinese side, you know, there, there are so many different dysfunctionalities uh, that should be addressed in order for uh, especially African governments you know, to get better deals. Uh, Dysfunction all around. I like that. Dysfunction <laughs> all around. How to negotiate in yes. uh, how to negotiate infrastructure deals with China? Four things African governments governments need to get right. It was written by Folashade Sule, who is a senior research associate at the University of Oxford at the Gov Global Economic Governance Program. There, uh, Folashade, thank you so much for joining us. This was so fascinating. We went on longer than we normally do, but I just feel that people need to understand the behind-the-scenes operation because it really warps the simplistic, oftentimes just very, very base 
headlines that we see. And so understanding the research that you're doing is critical to particularly places like Zambia and Kenya, where this is front and center as as, as issues that are uh, facing Edgar Lungo, the president there, and President Kenyatta as well. So thank you so much for taking the time to join us. If people want to uh, follow you and what you're reading and writing these days, I know you're on Twitter. What's, can you share your Twitter handle with everybody? Yes, it's Fola Sule. How do you spell that? It's F-O-L-A-S-O-U-L-E. And I highly recommend that you follow her. Her article can be found on The Conversation, but if you just type in how to negotiate infrastructure deals with China, uh, it was on courts, it was reprinted everywhere, and it really got a lot of headlines and it got a lot of people thinking about this very important topic. And we're so glad, Fula Shadi, that we were able to have you join us today. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Kobus. Kobus, 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 Kobus. This is one of those discussions that I really wanted to go on for so much longer. I had so many questions to ask her because really, if you unravel these negotiations, you in some ways unravel the mystery of China-Africa relations today. I mean, it's all there. And, And again, I feel frustrated in one sense that we're, we hear more on the African side and we don't hear much on the Chinese side. Um, I've reached out, just, just so you know, I've reached out to three Chinese scholars this week. All of them ignored me. And you just can't get people to speak publicly on these issues. And they would never talk about things that happen in the negotiations because of the concern that they have given the current political climate. And it's really unfortunate because we need to hear from both sides. When she said at the end, there's dysfunction on the Chinese side, there is dysfunction. What I kept thinking about when she was talking is never assign conspiracy when mediocrity will do. That's the saying that I live by. (laughs) And I just feel that when you hear people who are actually at the table, whether it was the former Liberian public works minister, Judy Moore, who we interviewed who's now at the Center for Global Development in Washington, who gave us a much more complex, nuanced picture of China-Africa infrastructure negotiations or listening to Fulashade. Once again, it is much more complicated. And the simplistic narratives that people like John Bolton put forward fall apart very, very quickly. I think the predatory lending narrative does come under assault. I don't know yet if it's in fact true, but I do think it's challenged when you hear it from people like Fulashade. I 100% agree. And it's, I, you know, Fulashade's work also shows how important it is to look at African governments with a lot more, lot, a lot more of an analytical eye, um, you know, to not just lump them all together and to not just assume what, what their internal dynamics are like, but to actually look at the, the specific, um, you, you know, dynamics that, 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 that actually undermine these negotiations frequently, um, you know, and to, to actually look at the political realities within African governments. Which which is which are frequently completely ignored in this in this discussion. You know, Africa is kind of flattened and lumped together as one thing, whereas you know, Africa is lots and lots of things, lots of people, lots of actors, um, and the the you need to unpack the, these complex relationships to see how the negotiations actually happen. And remember, even at the country level, there's a lot of diversity. She talked about how one deal. Uh, worked very well. And then, you know, another ministry handles another deal and it's full with corruption. So, it, it you know, forget Africa. 
When we get to countries as large as Nigeria or Kenya, there's a lot of moving parts here. And the Chinese, oftentimes, they too are separate entities and actors. And I think one of the big mistakes that a lot of people make about the Chinese is that there's this misperception that the Chinese are this monolithic, centralized, highly organized communist entity that comes in, you know, like a fine oiled machine. <laughs> Anybody who's lived in China knows that's not the case. But for outsiders, <laughs> they oftentimes have that perception. Um, they, too, are chaotic in many respects. One hand doesn't always know what the other is doing. So uh, it, it, this is by by no means this is the end of this discussion for us. We're going to continue it. Uh, throughout the year, and we hopefully can get people on the Chinese side. I'm trying very, very, very hard. If anybody has some recommendations on Chinese scholars who are interested and able and open to speak with the the media or other scholars, Western scholars or international scholars who are interfacing with Chinese experts on this, we would love to get the Chinese side so that we're not speculating and guessing, but we're actually hearing from people who know firsthand what's going on. So that'll do it for this edition. Before we go, a little bit of housekeeping. Uh, I want to give a really warm and generous thank you to Seth Harris, a recent graduate from Carleton College in Minnesota in the United States, who came by to see me and we had lunch together and he uh, it was fantastic to speak with him. So, Seth, you know, excellent, you know, excellent to meet you and really, really excited for what you've got going ahead. Uh, and he gave lots of nice feedback on the program. So we always love to hear from you. If you want to email us, you can hit us up on Twitter, on LinkedIn. Uh, my email is on the, uh, you know, everywhere here. We're still trying to fix Cobus's email. We're going <laughs> to, that's my plan for 2019 is to get Cobus of China Africa we project email address. We've got everything else going, but we haven't been able to get that to work. Uh, so that is, uh, that will do that. Also, I, I bought my son for Christmas. Um, I'm not going to actually say the word. It's an Amazon dot. I won't actually say the word that triggers it because then people <laughs> will hate me for it. Uh, but I tried, I, I said, you know, play the China Africa Project podcast and basta, there it was. It started playing. Wow. So if you've got <laughs> one of wonderful. those devices, which I will not say her name, but if you've got one of those devices, you can play us directly through that via TuneIn. So we, uh, so that's pretty exciting, you know, so you know, train your Alexa to play the China and Africa podcast. We really appreciate it. So that'll do it for this edition of the China in Africa podcast. For Kobus van Staden, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa project to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Gwobas at Stadinsky or Eric at eOlander. And be sure to sign up for the weekly China and Africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com.